for you. Good morning, Vaughn. Good morning, Jazz. Welcome to the early shift. <laughs> yes, as I was saying earlier today, as I was driving in, I saw people heading home, and I realized uh, some people are finishing off their evenings, and it reminded me how old I am. <laughs> I would not have the energy to stay up that late on a Sunday night, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, well, the, I've been on the early shift for a while, so uh, that's exactly. fine. I, a long time ago, I discovered that the world is run by people who get up early in the morning. I figured I should get up early to keep an eye on them, yeah. so here I am. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, you know, I'm th- I was thinking back um, to when I was in MLA, and it was January of 2019. I was at my uh, Lunar New Year's uh, celebration, Chinese New Year, and it's a big event, as one would expect, in Richmond, and uh, thousands of people at the shopping mall, one of the main shopping malls there would meet. But that year in 2019, I noticed there was about 60% less people. Like, literally, there are thousands, four-hour live TV. Uh, and it was the first inkling, Vaughn, that I got uh, of COVID. And the Chinese community, in many ways, was ahead of the curve in re- to understanding the scope of this global pandemic because they, they're so connected to, the, to, obviously, the diaspora and, 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 and news from China. Uh, and here we are in December, still having this conversation. And, uh, uh, and, and the latest, of course, is the big announcement last week in regards to these regulations that have been brought in. There's a technical briefing today and a, and a, and a press conference after that. What can we expect from, from, from Dr. Henry and Minister Dix? Well, I hope we can see them catching up because, you know, they had, what, three briefings in four days last week, which, you know, tells you just how much Omicron has disrupted the leisurely schedule that British Columbia was on. I, I think I heard from a lot of people, Jazz, over the weekend mm-hmm. who were going Ontario's reporting over the weekend, Quebec reports over the weekend. Why isn't British Columbia in a crisis like this reporting over the weekend? So we don't in British Columbia take the weekend off on giving us the numbers. So, you know, it's going to be good to hear from them today. But my sense, Jazz, in all the feedback that I'm getting is... Why is British Columbia so slow to respond? Where are the booster shots? Where's the rapid testing? Why? I, got, I heard from readers over the weekend who are going, listeners, why are they closing the vaccine clinics in mm-hmm. some parts of British Columbia and giving people statutory holidays? I heard from people who said, hey, if we can work 24-7 to get the Coca-Cola open, why can't we be working 24-7 to get people vaccinated? Mm-hmm. Now, and why do you think that is, though, Vaughn? I mean, you know, the government, generally speaking, has gotten, you know, a pat on the back in the way they've handled uh, the, the pandemic, although there have been many cases where there was valid criticism. They seem flat-footed on this one, uh, and I don't understand why. Like, it, we've been in this for two years. Why is it so bad right now? Well, I'll say two things about British Columbia's response. And the first thing to say is, you're right. British Columbia has gotten some things very right. We have one of the best vaccination rates anywhere. Uh, British Columbia, I think, found a good balance point between lockdown and keeping the economy going. It's shown up in the recent financial update for British Columbia. I think it took courage and that courage was exercised to keep schools open when other places were closing and caving them. So I say all that as a preface. To me, British Columbia's great weakness has been a tendency to take premature victory laps, which I think has given the public Mm -hmm. the impression that it's over, and responding slow. 
British Columbia responded slowly to the second wave. It responded slowly to the third wave. It responded slowly, although it did respond. You know, it does come around and do it to the fourth wave. And I think here we are in the fifth wave and we're not even acknowledging it. So both those things have to be held in mind at the same time. British Columbia has gotten many things right, but it has been slow to respond as each threat comes along. When I, when I watch uh, our response and other uh, nations' response, you know, I always think there's sort of three pillars here. There's the scientist or the public health officer, there's the politician, and then there's public sentiment. Yep. And when you look at Ontario uh, and British Columbia, when it comes to booster shots, British Columbia will say, and our government will say, we're relying on the science. The science may tell you six months. But there's also public sentiment, and the politician has to weigh that. And, and in Ontario, they're moving a lot faster and saying anybody 18 plus, and we're going to move from eight, eight months or six months down to three months. Um, do you think it's a challenge also that we've relied a little bit too much on the science? What I mean by that is politicians sometimes have to make tough decisions and have to look and listen to public sentiment. And public sentiment, which you've nailed, nailed on the head here, is where's the rapid testing and the booster shots? Why aren't we moving faster and quicker getting people the booster shots? Well, you know, a couple of things about booster shots. So the message we're getting from the B.C. government is uh, don't see people, don't meet indoors with people who aren't fully vaccinated. Well, I suggest to you, Jazz, that the science is changing. Fully vaccinated increasingly means two doses plus a booster shot. So, again, you know, if you talk about this in British Columbia, you hear back from NDP supporters and say, ah, yeah, well, that's Doug Ford, you know, right-wing politicians, blah, blah, blah. Okay, have a look at the Twitter feed for Rachel Notley, who's the NDP leader in the province of Alberta and a former, you know, she lived and worked in British Columbians alongside in British Columbia alongside John Horgan as a staffer in the NDP government of the 1990s. Yeah, I remember that. She's saying four months. She's saying you have to move up the schedule for booster shots because the six-month to eight-month interval is linked to Delta. Omicron is more transmissible. As a matter of precaution, you should be looking at four months. So I think there's an emerging consensus everywhere else but British Columbia that you should be stepping up the delivery of booster shots. It's not just a public sentiment. I think the science is changing as well. Yeah. Well, we're going to be talking about COVID uh, in the next hour with um, Health Minister Adrian Dix. But let's talk about um, another issue, which I'm uh, very close to growing up in the interior, which is the forest industry. And you had a very good column this weekend talking that about uh, we have two major companies uh, in this province, uh, Canfor and Teal Jones. Both made major investments in production, but outside of British Columbia. Yeah, I mean, one of the big stories in the forest industry in 2021, the year started that way and it ended that year, was that British Columbia forest companies, they got a lot of cash, a lot of ability to spend. They spent a lot investing in increased production, tenure, mills, and they did it elsewhere. So the week ended, as you said last week, with Canfor and Teal Jones um, announcing uh, Canfor $420 million uh, to buy assets in Alberta and Tenures. 
Uh, Teal Jones uh, announcing a partnership for $140 million investment, state-of-the-art sawmill in Louisiana. And I went back on the weekend and just went back through the whole year. And what jumps out is that British Columbia-based forest companies, our major forest companies, together spent <clears throat> almost $10 billion buying production facilities, mills, assets, including forest tenures, elsewhere across Canada, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, south of the border in the United States. Uh, you put it all together, and I think it adds up to a fairly chilling comment about the in climate for investment in forestry in British Columbia in 2021. Um, so let me play devil's advocate here, uh, and being a former BC Liberal here, there's always complaints that that we need to restructure forestry yep. in a significant manner. We're, 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 we, yep. we are becoming so efficient at, at forestry, uh, or at least extracting uh, the fiber, we ship off raw logs to China and many other places, that the Liberals in 16 years didn't make the structural changes because it's very difficult. It's very harmful at times to communities because there is short-term job loss as well. That the NDP is actually doing what the Liberals should have done, but it will mean uh, that these companies will invest elsewhere, but we will have a restructured industry where we will see better days ahead, perhaps four years from now, five years from now, but at this core, we do need to restructure this industry. I think it's an open question whether this is going to work. Hmm. I agree with you. Uh, this problem goes back to before the NDP took office. It goes back to before the Liberals, arguably, to when the NDP was in government the last time. So hmm. there's lots of blame to go around on this. BC companies have for some time been buying production facilities in the U.S. because it gets around the U.S. softwood lumber tariffs, for one thing. Uh, we have the pine beetles. They ate They've eaten a big chunk of the forest, so there's lots of factors here. The, the specific thing that I think can be linked to this government and its po forest policies in the last few years is they've changed the rules around tenure in particular. So forest companies get access to timber cutting rights, and in return they build facilities here. And the government this fall changed the rules. The cabinet can now arbitrarily reduce what it pays for timber cutting rights when it takes them back. I think that's got the major forest companies going. I don't know if I want to invest in British Columbia right now because the tenures aren't there. It's not safe anymore. It's safer to buy assets elsewhere. And the reason that's a big problem for the NDP is you're right, Jazz. Part of their message is we're going to restructure the forest industry and go to value-added production. Value-added mills are very expensive, hundreds of millions of dollars. Is anyone going to build that kind of mills mm -hmm. when they don't know if their tenure and access to wood in B.C. is secure? Yeah, wow. That's, that's a very interesting um uh, dilemma there for uh, forest companies, and at the end of the day, they don't they don't, they vote not by complaining; they vote by where they invest, and that's usually a, a sign in regards to um, the state of British Columbia's forest industry right now. Well, I look forward to uh, many more interesting conversations uh, conversations with you, Vaughn, uh, throughout this week. Thank you so much. Very good, Jazz. Bye. Right, bye. Take Have care. fun. Take care. <laughs> that's Vaughn Palmer, Vancouver Sun columnist, with his view from Victoria, the Dean of the Victoria Press Gallery.